pray together. Our Father, we live in such a difficult and sinful world where we're beset by things that pollute our lives. We think back even to ancient Israel and how they had to be purified, not in order to be forgiven, but be purified just to come and offer sacrifice. That they had to purify themselves, Lord, ceremonially to begin to get their focus on Yahweh and off the things of the world. And that's, that was in a world where there really wasn't that much other distraction. And so for us, Lord, we, we yearn to take the Lord's day and it takes time. It takes uh, effort for us to consecrate ourselves, as it were, to be focused exclusively on worshiping you and on Christ. There's so many worries and concerns in our lives and in this world. And so we ask you this day and even to use this hour, Lord, to further focus our attentions solely on our God. And we pray that this morning would help us toward that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I I keep apologizing for Module 7, but this is more not studying the Bible, but studying about the Bible. And so we all understand that that's not, uh, this can't be all we do, but there are some important principles here. So the, the part we're at now is application. And... This is actually a relatively short lesson, uh, the, the art and science, and it's really both, of applying the Word of God, um, first to your own heart, and then to uh, maybe a, a Bible lesson you might be coming up with, whether it's for second graders or for uh, adults. Um, applying the text of Scripture is really a lifetime pursuit. It's really something to work at and to continue. There's no uh, single method. There's no single um, exact way. Uh, What we do have are lots of great examples from Scripture. I I think the clearest example from Scripture is the Apostle Paul. Um, He had a very clear pattern in his epistles, and that was to present theology and then present practice, to present orthodoxy and orthopraxy, uh, to present uh, the content of our faith and the conduct of our faith. And so what does that tell us? It tells us you have to start with content. That's why we wait till right near the very end to even think about application. Um, If you're in a position where you are going to teach Bible lessons, I, I would encourage you to always keep a a tab or a notebook or however you want to do it of potential applications. I, I do this every time I'm studying. Um, I, I start a, a folder or a notebook that is just fodder for me to draw from. And generally what happens is I find that a lot of the ones I thought would be great really don't relate to the text. I have to test them against the proper exegesis. Um, But uh, I I find the best applications are the ones that uh, come a little more naturally um, as a text is really speaking to your own heart and really um, something strikes you. That's the time to think about it. So while I'm putting this near the end of the study process. Um, the fact is, is that nobody's looking over your shoulder. Uh, if, if you open a text and read a verse for the first time and say, I'm going to study this verse, and an application pops into your mind, a potential application, and you write it down, and just as your pen comes up, you hear, and I'm at the door, aha, you did application first. That, that's not going to happen. And, and while I carry the, uh, the vision of many seminary professors on my shoulders yelling at me every week, um, Sometimes I have to go, 
Okay, I'm doing this one a little bit differently. So, I am putting it near the end of your study process, but this is the whole point of study. This is the whole reason. If you're studying just to know something, then really that puts you in the realm of of Gnosticism. That I just want to know because I like knowing. You know things from Scripture so that it may change your life, and even better, so that you may change the lives of others. So, how do you apply the text? I have a little picture here I think is helpful. This is from uh, the book by Duval and Hayes, which I would highly recommend. There's a, there's a short version, Journeying into God's Word, then there's a long version. They use this little, uh, this little picture. And, and the picture is this. You're starting in their town. I've shown you this picture before. Notice the palm trees. That's the universal symbol of 4,000 years ago. Um, So you're starting in their town. What does that mean? It means you're studying the text in its own context. What did Genesis, uh, for example, Genesis 12 mean when God gave Abram his promises? What did it mean? It meant the same thing that it means now. But you have to go back and find out what that is. If you start here in our town, which is the generally accepted method of Bible study, um, you're starting with application. And what you're saying is, Abraham, uh, you know, what happened to you 4,000 years ago was, you know, that was nice. But really, Bakersfield, California in 2023 is really where it's at. Uh, that's the same attitude that says that singing a song that's more than a year old is somehow dusty and old. We love old songs because they're proven and they're, they're still true. And we relate to the saints who 300 years ago sang those songs. So you, you have to start in their town. That's the hard work of, um, of uh, introductory material and understanding the culture and, and doing all those, um, those steps before you even really get to the text itself. Then you have the crossing the bridge. This is, uh, or let me go up here, the width of the river. Uh, Culture, language, time, situation, covenant. Those are all things that you're considering. And let me give you a a radical example to talk about the width of the river. Um, A narrow river to cross would be something like um, considering marital love. In the Old Testament, marital love 4,000 years ago isn't significantly different than it is now. There's still the same feelings of love. There's procreation. There's, uh, there's commitment for a lifetime. Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, taking out his sword and hacking a king to pieces, that's a wide river to cross. Does that make sense? So, so a narrow river, something that, that we easily relate to. Um, how do you apply a prophet of God hacking a world leader to pieces with his sword? Uh, there's no more prophets, and we're not allowed to hack world leaders uh, to pieces, even though I know you want to sometimes. <laughs> so that's the width of the river. And, and really, that's a good little exercise to do. What are the challenges here in going from... from uh, their town, getting over that river. So how wide is it? Um, for example, we sing a hymn, uh, and I don't, I don't remember the exact hymn. Uh, we've been singing it all this, uh, this month. And I believe there's a line, I believe it's from the book of Job, that talks about um, my noxious breath. That's a wide river to cross. Because all the kids, like 10 and under, are going, this is the most hilarious uh, thing ever. Uh, What what it's talking about, 
um, in, in context, I believe, uh, if I remember right, is that anything I say is sinful. And so, uh, so that's a wide river to cross. Uh, we find the river less wide to cross when we're dealing with a New Testament text. We, we just because there's a church in the New Testament, uh, there's no church in the Old Testament, despite what our covenant theologian brothers would tell us. So you've established the width of the river. Now you're crossing the bridge. What are the principles that apply? Um, I brought up the uh, Samuel hacking Agag uh, to pieces. Um, what's the principle there? Well, the situation was that Agag was a representative of the fact that King Saul was disobedient to the Lord. The Lord said that you commit all things to destruction in this particular battle. Everything. Kings, women, children, everything. And Saul didn't do that. And so Samuel came in and did what an unrighteous man was unwilling to do. So what is the principle? The principle is that you stand for righteousness even when it's difficult, even when it's hard. So those are, so those are principles. And now we're getting, into, um, we're getting into application because now you're going over to our town. In what situations in our context do I need to stand for righteousness even when it's difficult? Now you ask that question, you have successfully crossed that bridge, and now the process of application can begin. So I know we've done this before, but I can't stress that too much, um, because there's a, uh, there's a pendulum tendency in Bible teaching, either giving too little attention to application in favor of pure knowledge, that's a, a lecture only, and by the way, lectures have a place. Uh, there, there is a place for lectures. We're doing one right now. Um, lectures have a place, but they can't have an exclusive place. A lecture is simply the giving of knowledge without applying it to your life. Um, I, I think that being a, a pastor is one of the most ironic uh, roles there is because you pay my mortgage, you pay my car for my cars, and, and you pay for my food because you're so gracious and kind and you believe in the gospel gospel ministry, you want to be fed the word of God, and my job is to come and have you leaving here with your toes cut off, feeling like I need to be more righteous this week. It's not a customer satisfaction business, is it? It's a customer sanctification business. And so a lecture doesn't do that. Now, a lecture might provide the uh, provide the foundation for application. One of the reasons we love children's ministry, and I believe with all of my heart in children's ministry, one of the biggest reasons for children's ministry is not uh, so that kids can learn exactly what the Word of God says on a, on a delicate issue when, by the time they're in third grade. The reason for children's ministry is to pour a broad, deep, and wide foundation for them so that as they're older and they're hearing expository preaching, they have a huge foundation to put that on. Um, and I have preached to, to crowds before who uh, people come up to me afterwards and say, now, who was Abraham? You talked about him a lot. And, and who was Noah? And now, what do you believe about evolution? Because, so they had no foundation whatsoever. It makes preaching really difficult. So... Uh, Lectures and knowledge have a place. Um, on June 9th and 10th, we're doing our first ever Grace Theological Academy. It's all lecture. Now, I know Jay and I know myself, we're going to sneak in application. That's just the way it's going to be. But um, that's laying the foundation. But to swing to one side, and I don't know if you've ever attended a church where 
the, the, the pastor isn't preaching, he's just doing the theological lecture. Um, that's not appropriate. There's preaching and teaching. The other pendulum swing is too much attention to application without explaining the text. That's a, uh, that's a lazy man's way out. Uh, to say, well, I, I spent uh, 4.3 seconds reading this verse and now I'm going to talk about it for 20 minutes and, and give you application. The first pendulum swing, lecture only, just all knowledge, it leads to a heady, cold faith. And, and to be very fair, um, that is a reputation that sometimes Bible churches have. One of my personal goals is to push back against that reputation that a Bible church ought to be a church that, that heartily and adamantly and forcefully applies the Word of God to the hearts of the hearer. That's what a Bible church ought to be. But Bible churches have a reputation of being heady and cold sometimes. But the other pendulum swing, too much attention to application, it leads to faulty interpretation, leads to the misuse of Scripture, and it leads to a, a, a congregation that's very comfortable with very, very shallow sermons, what one uh, pastor called sermonettes for Christianettes. And that's what they become comfortable with. And once you get a high percentage of people comfortable with that, then th- it's a lost cause. At that point, the church needs to split. It needs to split with those who want to hear the Word of God and have it cut deeply as a scalpel into their lives and those who want to play church. And so it's a, it's a pretty dangerous thing. So our job as Bible teachers, whether it's your own study just for yourself or you're, you're leading someone else, your job is to find that balance in there. Here's a theme verse for the Bible student and the teacher, James one twenty two: Be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you say, I love theology, that's a bit of a tricky, uh, tricky phrase, isn't it? Do you love theology? You could say that. Maybe you enjoy it. Um, I prefer to say, because theology just means the study of God, I love the God I'm studying. That's what theology should lead to. Theology should also always lead to doxology, to the glory of God, not just to cramming your head full of knowledge. So, there are some challenges I mentioned this already, but bridging the historical gap between the time of the Bible and present day. How do the words of Scripture impact my life today? And, and i got to say this, um, bridging that gap, is not, there's not a trick to it. There's not, a, uh, there, there's not some secret pastor's book that we, you know, I push a, a button under my desk and this vault comes out and the secret application book comes out. There's no trick to it. It is time. It is time. It is putting yourself in... Oh, let me go backwards. Well, putting yourself in their town for a sufficient period of time to feel like you're there. Uh, or as some like to say, putting yourself in the sandals of the, the people who are living there. And that takes time. It takes reading. It might take stacking up some resources and saying, I'm just going to read about this for a while. Another challenge, not taking the scripture out of context to make the application you want. Um, this is a classic teaching error to teach a correct lesson from the wrong text. Uh, What's one of my favorites? Um, Jesus observing the widow putting her two uh, pennies, her two mites into the treasury. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on sacrificial giving from that text? Yeah. It's actually the opposite. That is a text where Jesus is decrying and crying out against church leaders who are church leaders, uh, Jewish leaders who are basically the prosperity gospel preachers of the day, and they were stealing money from widows. 
by putting guilt on them that you need God's favor, therefore you need to give. So, should you give sacrificially? Absolutely. Teach that from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, not from the, not from the, the story of the, the widow giving her two mites. So, so, being careful to not start with application. Uh, this is a tough thing. You have something you want to communicate to someone, then you go find scriptures. There, there is a place for that, but you have to be careful because you're already starting backwards. So um, much better to just start with the text and let it lead you to application. I've already mentioned this, jumping too quickly to application. You can keep notes, but I use a, um, I use a symbol. When, in the notes I keep about application, it's a real simple symbol. Uh, one question mark beforehand says to me, I'm pretty sure this is going to hold water. About 10 question marks says this is a total long shot, but I'm putting it down because it really preaches well. And if it turns out to be uh, applicable from this text, then I'll use it. You have no idea all the stuff that I hit delete, delete, delete on. Usually the 10 question mark one. So, uh, so I use the 1 to 10 question mark method. That's, that's my own dumb method. But when I see something with 10 question marks, because I, I study ahead, um, I, I have... I have things I've studied for the Millennium Series as much as a year ago. And so when I see 10 question marks, I'm really suspicious of myself. And so I'll read it and I'll go, I don't even know what I was thinking then. That, that didn't make any sense. So it's fine to make note of potential applications, but just have some method to say, uh, hey, this may not hold water. And that's okay. You, you have to be uh, humble. Um, and I'm not going to come preach. Here's 10 things that I thought were true that are false. And I'm going to tell you all about them. No, that just quietly goes in the trash. And I, I thank the Lord for his help. Another challenge, being able to recognize times when implication is more appropriate than application. What's the difference? Um, application. I'm going to do a, a ton of application this morning in our message in the, in the morning service. Um, lists. I like to preach lists that are they're applicable. Implication is just the glory of the truth itself impressing itself into your heart. That's different than knowledge for the sake of knowledge. For example, at our Steadfast Bible Conference this year, we're going to preach five sermons on the deity of Christ. You know what the application is? It's worship Christ because he's worthy. And so that will be filled with implication, filled with understanding that that hearing this truth elevates Christ and lowers me. So that's uh, that's a little more subtle, but uh, know the difference between them. Uh, I love implications because implications are generally driven home by the Holy Spirit. I think all sermons that are biblical are driven home by the Holy Spirit. But implication is uh, is phenomenal. I, I know a I, I know of a family that went through a terrible loss uh, in their family, a death of a child. And you know what got them through it? It was studying R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. There's no application to their situation there, and yet. Just being saturated in an elevated view of God was what got them through that. Okay, now that's all uh, our introductory stuff. I better go faster now. Um, Principles of application. I would use this just sort of as a a checklist for yourself. And I'm going to go through it pretty quickly because it's it's not difficult to understand. An application cannot violate the proper grammatical historical interpretation of the given text. Uh... Here's an example of bad applications. Uh, Romans 13.8 Owe no one anything. How is that usually preached? Debt is sin. 
right? So everybody with a mortgage is going, well, I don't like uh, Romans 13.8. What's the context? The context is giving people respect that is owed to them. That's the context. Uh, I've already talked about the widow's two small coins. Uh, giving generously, even if it hurts, that's not the application. Those are bad applications. So you have to be able to, and we've used this term before, you have to be able to reverse engineer your application from the text and give a logical sequence. Why am I taking this application from the text? If you can answer that question, then it's reasonable. Another principle, find the elements present-day readers share with the original audience. Um, that's just a matter of really being thoughtful and reading, uh, using a, a couple of good resources. I found that the NIV application commentary is very good at that. Um, that's a helpful resource. It's, it's way overkill sometimes, and their applications are out of bounds a lot of times. But it's okay to be willing to read things that you don't fully agree with to, to kind of stimulate your own thinking. Um, understand the covenants and the differences. Don't use an Old Testament law to make a rule for a new, new covenant Christian. Um, but the Old Testament laws carry principles which are reaffirmed in the New Testament. By the way, when we do um, the Grace Theological Academy, I'm going to do an hour-long lecture on how the Christian uses the Old Covenant, the proper way to do that. And so um, that might be useful to your own study. So you don't ignore the, the redemptive plan element of the text. You connect the dots. Um, in other words, if you're preaching from the or, or teaching from the Ten Commandments, commandments, that's fine, that's great. It is all, all scripture is, is God-breathed. But how does that cross over into New Covenant? You have to be able to answer that question adequately. Uh, determine what is normative for today. Uh, for, for example, the book of Acts is filled with wonderful principles. It's also filled with things that have never happened since. Tongues of fire appearing over people's heads. Uh, believers dropping dead when an apostle condemns them. Um, things like that. Another example, a Nazarite in the Old Testament was not to cut his hair as a sign of dedication to the Lord. Um, That's not valid today because the entire law of Moses has expired as being normative for us. But the principle of dedication, total dedication to the Lord has not expired. Um, I would would call ministers of the gospel men who are, are New Testament, New Covenant Nazarites. They have devoted themselves exclusively to something that is greater than uh, themselves. Look for the principle naturally occurring in the text. For example, Ruth is an example of patience and suffering, a, a servant's heart, a genuine salvation experience. The book of Ruth is not um, how to be financially uh, frugal by uh, gleaning in the field, so to speak. That's not what Ruth is about. So if the application is right there before you, I mean, the Lord handed it to you on a silver platter, you may as well use it. Um, The naturally occurring principle is a bridge to application today. How can I be patient in suffering? When the Apostle Paul uh, says that the very first element that that, that we're to do as Christians, that uh, he says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, this is Ephesians 4, um, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility. Do we need much of a bridge? No, that's a river that's an inch wide you can hop over. We, we understand that one. How can I be patient in suffering? How can I have a servant's heart? What does genuine salvation um, look like? Honestly allow the text to impact you personally. 
I, I, I cannot stress this enough at the, at the women's retreat and at the upcoming men's fellowship event. Um, we're going to talk extensively, or we did, and we're going to talk extensively about a text that you're studying impacting you at a deep and, and broad level. Those are the best applications. Those are the ones that if it changes your heart, then you can be certain that it needs to change others' hearts as well if you're studying to teach. Pray about application. Um, let the Holy Spirit be your guide through the medium of good study and, and meditation on the, on the passage. Um, I always appreciate when people pray for me before I preach, and our, our elders are, are gracious, and they pray for me every week. And um, But I, I joke with them about this, and they don't really do it. Uh, but I, I joke about the person who prays, Lord, give him the words to say. My thought is, if I don't have the words to say by now, why would I put that on the Holy Spirit to make up for my lack of study and preparation? That is not to say that I don't want the Spirit of God working through me, and sometimes we do say words uh, that, uh, that are, are led of the Spirit at that moment. But uh, the prayer that means the most to me, personally, is let the Holy Spirit guide his study and guide his, his heart and, and application as part of that. And then test your application. Do your principles line up with established scriptural principles? If, for example, you're studying an Old Testament text, could you find three passages in the New Testament that line up with the principles that you're trying to apply? Is your application given elsewhere in Scripture? If you come up with something that you say, this is totally unique and no place else in the Bible has this, you should not be excited about that. You should be scared of that. Um, because the Bible interprets itself. It's the, the best of the principles are repeated everywhere. And when you think you found a principle that occurs one time, you should be very suspicious of that. You always, uh, you always interpret the least clear text with other clearer texts. That's always um, at the forefront. And then here's a great uh, little question in testing your application. Does someone in Scripture live out your application as an example? If you can find somebody who lives out your application, that helps you understand that, uh, that uh, you, you are on the right track. Now, let me give you a great example of this. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 I'm going to talk about this some this morning. I'll give, a, I'll give away a little bit. There's 13 verses from Romans 12, 9 through 21 that talk about how the body of Christ is to get along with each other. Seven of them have to do with how to deal with conflict. Um, and, how to, and, and two of those seven have very strong commands against ever taking vengeance for yourself. That vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And Paul uh, quotes the multiple places in the Old Testament that that says that. Um, so the question is, first of all, I, I, my, my experience has been that Christians don't think that applies to them. Because, well, I'm not going to somebody's house. I'm not, like, letting the air out of his tires. I'm not, you know, trying to cut his head off with a sword. I'm not doing any of that. You ever uh, had anybody give you the silent treatment? Ever had anybody uh, put a wall of ice between you that you could see? Absolutely. We still take vengeance. That's why Paul commanded the church, don't be vengeful. Can you think of somebody in the Bible who deserved to be the king of Israel, but refused to take vengeance on the false king of Israel? David with Saul. Saul could have been killed by David multiple times. And David, you know, now, admittedly, pretty snarky to come up and cut off part of his, uh, uh, part of his robe and to take his spear and his water jug and say, hey, look what I got. Um, but he was making the point. 
I could have taken vengeance, but I won't do it. So, if you're teaching from Romans 12 that you should not take vengeance, and you find this example in David, um, you know, somebody says something to you that you find a little bit offensive or rude, and so you decide to give them the silent treatment for, the, for a month. When you compare David, the rightful king of Israel, on the run for his life, refusing to take vengeance on the man who is literally trying to kill him, um, what does that do to that little rude comment? Who cares? How much more will I obey Romans 12? So if you find someone in the scripture living out your application, you know it's rock solid. And that's a, that's a good way to go. In Howard Hendricks' book on studying the Bible, it's the book, uh, Living by the Book, he gives nine questions to ask. And this is, a, this, is, this is gold here. Is there an example for me to follow? If you're studying the text where the Apostle Paul says, follow my example, that's a no-brainer right there. Is there a sin to avoid? And some of them might say, well, I don't want to be negative when I'm teaching. You just be as negative as Scripture is. Um, that's, that's a good rule of thumb. Is there a promise to claim? Uh, what, what would be a good promise? That um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And yes, the context is uh, the gospel ministry, but um, that principle applies across the board. Is there a prayer to repeat? You know that the book of Ephesians, if you look carefully at it, 25% of it is prayer. 25% is God uh, being spoken to by the Apostle Paul. So is there a prayer for me to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Um, during the, our time here in, in, in uh, BTI, we use the word imperative a lot. And it just takes very basic Bible study tools uh, to understand the difference between a, uh, an imperative and something that's a, a wish, a, a hope. There's a difference between those two. An imperative is, there, there's no wiggling out of it. It is a command. Is there a condition to meet? Is there a verse to memorize? Is there an error to mark? Is there a challenge to face? Let me go back to the, is there a verse to memorize? Um, Deuteronomy 32, I can't remember, I think it's verse 47, and I I don't don't bet any money on that. Uh, In the New American Standard Version says, it is not an idle word for you, indeed it is your life. Um, the reason I have that verse memorized is because I sat under a godly man who for 30 weeks taught ecclesiology or uh, taught bibliology and made the whole congregation repeat three times every Sunday. It is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. So is there a verse to memorize an error to mark? Um, that's what's called polemical teaching. You're arguing against something and sometimes that is necessary. Is there a challenge to face? another guideline a few guidelines application should be based in reality not in esoteric theory Um, I'll give you an example an ineffective application that you can hear in any church regardless of whether it believes the gospel or not is and so the point of this message is consider the life of Christ and that sounds really good but Everyone walks out going, okay, but now I need to consider lunch, and I need to consider I have bills to pay. What does it even mean to consider the life of Christ? Here's an effective application. 
Next time you have the opportunity, be as compassionate with a difficult person as Jesus was with the 5,000 that he fed miraculously that he knew sovereignly were going to reject him the next day. Do you see the difference? These, these broad, consider the life of Christ. Uh, ironically, you know where this, uh, probably the worst of offenses happen. Uh, this would never happen at Grace Bible Church, but the worst offenses happen um, with children, teaching children. I have heard so many children's lessons where somebody says something like, uh, and first of all, they're using metaphors. Children can't, they don't know what metaphors are. That your faith is like this apple. It's red. Uh, that's, that, they, they can't relate to that. But using a general term, a general idea. So, you should think about Jesus. What is an eight-year-old going to do with that? What am I supposed to think about Jesus? With an eight-year-old, what you can say is, you have brothers and sisters. Jesus was kind to people who were unkind to him. Tomorrow, when your sister irritates you, you need to stop and say, thank you, Jesus, for my sister. You see the difference? So, um, they should be based in reality, not just this esoteric uh, theory. Applications should answer the question, what do I do with this? Or the way I like to put it, so what? So what? I, I write so what in all caps in my notes every week of my life. I have, I have multiple documents I use to prepare um, messages and I, put, I copy and paste so what all over the place. Anytime something is really interesting to me, oh, time to write so what. Because if it's interesting in and of itself, that doesn't do anything. If it's interesting for a purpose, then that does something. Now, you notice this, that the application may be directly to the heart. The Holy Spirit will do different things with different people. That is normal. That is normal. You don't have to uh, determine what the Spirit of God is going to do in people's hearts. I've used this illustration before. Uh, it may be the last one I ever use on this earth if the Lord lets me keep preaching. Every Sunday, I hold a bow with hundreds of arrows in it. And I just, all my job is to let go. And the arrows go wherever the Holy Spirit directs. Some church members, as it were, take their armor off and they welcome as many arrows as can pierce their hearts. Other Christians are like, you know, they're, they're, they're dodging. They don't want to hear the word of God. <clears throat> but you know what the power of the word is? Is that that one arrow that you dodged will come back as a hundred and get you in the back. That is the power of the Word of God. That might even happen all the way up through church discipline where somebody is sitting in a room by themselves going, wow, if I had listened to this five years ago, I wouldn't be in this situation. The same is for you. If you're teaching first graders, don't minimize that. How many of you here remember people who taught you as children? Yeah. How many of you here remember what I preached three weeks ago? You have five seconds. <laughs> what you're doing with children is important. If you're teaching little ones, your little bitty ones at home, uh, if you're working in the nursery, anyone here work in the nursery ever? Some of you? Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> the biggest guy in the room works in the nursery. I love that. He got, he got a baby in each hand. Um, oh, pray over those babies. Pray over them and, and, and tell the Lord, I know this is silly, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing this first verse of this hymn to this baby. You think the Spirit of God won't use that? 
I don't know, but I'm not going to risk it. I'm, I, I, I want to stand before the Lord and have Him tell me, you remember that rotten little two-year-old that you prayed over as you were spanking him? <laughs> he got saved because of your 15th prayer. I want to hear that. So, don't minimize... I took BTI, I did two and a half years to do this so that I can teach four-year-olds what happened in the Garden of Eden. Don't minimize it. It's important. Expect to change lives with your teaching and teach toward this end. Don't just give information. One of the most impactful things I ever heard, you ever have one of those moments that in, in five minutes your entire view on something changes? Um, one of the most impactful things I ever heard, and I, I believed this in my heart, but I never heard anybody say it out loud. But it was, it was during um, a lecture that Steve Lawson was doing in my doctor of ministry program. And I always believed this, but literally never heard anybody say it just outright. He simply said, if you're preaching to a church and nobody's getting saved, then you're failing. Now, keep in mind, Steve Lawson is as dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist as you can possibly be. But he said, you're failing because you're preaching without an absolute expectation that people are going to get saved. He said, you need to preach with that expectation. You need to preach with, um, with conviction. You need to preach as if uh, what Charles Spurgeon said, that, that you pray as if everything depends on God and you work as if everything depends on you. And if you're in a teaching situation, and maybe it's just your little kids, maybe it's your grandchildren, expect your teaching to do something. Expect it to change lives. And then last, expect it to study your study to change your life. That's the meditation on the Word of God that, that we've talked about with the women and we're going to talk about with the men. It, it should change you. When, when we, we did the women's retreat here a few weeks ago, and we'll do this with the guys. I, I, I did the example of Psalm 23, just using one of the most familiar passages, just to just to come up with um, some meditations at the end of study. And by the time we were finished, we had gone through 188 meditations on on uh, Psalm 23. And for me personally, I didn't feel like it would be uh, it would be an act of integrity to find and use somebody else's. Meditations. I needed to. I needed to sift through my own heart, and, and I don't know uh, what it did for all the women. I know what it did for me, and that was to uh, to be an impact on myself. And, and that's what I expect of myself, and I expect of all of our pastors who, who teach every week that our study should change ourselves. Um, it has to. And hopefully you sense that. Hopefully you sense the, the, um, the yearning and the desire for holiness in your shepherd's lives as well as just our hope for that for you. Well, let's do an example of an application. We'll go back to our text here, Ephesians four thirty-one and 32. The one that we've used as an example. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And I've, I've given you three applications. And, and this is, if you haven't been here before, this is all based on weeks and weeks of study we've already done together in this. This is not just, I read it once and, hmm, this sounds good. No, this is based on what we've already learned. Application one. Bitterness has been common to mankind since Cain was bitter with Abel. It's a sign of believing someone is less worthy of God's grace than you are. A return to the gospel and an honest evaluation of why you believe you have the right to maintain bitterness lets the air out of this sin. 
So that's a, that's a worthy application. Second application, there's no wiggle room in these verses. We're commanded to forgive one another and no conditions are given here. This is not optional. And a third application, the key to forgiving another is to examine how Christ forgave you. Why do we come up with that? Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. You were completely forgiven permanently with no future condemnation or mention of your sin. Romans 8.1. What is the classic problem we have with somebody who says they forgave us? They keep bringing it up again. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? And he even made a promise. There's the, there's the promise uh, to claim that Romans 8.1, when I'm feeling guilty about sins that I committed before I was even saved, Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So those are three applications. I have a, a couple of minutes here. Do you have any questions about application? Then I'm going to give you a little bit of a sneak preview to what we're doing next time. Any, any questions about all this? I know I threw a lot at you. This is the hardest part of Bible study. Because uh, now you're venturing into, oh no, what if I get it wrong? I understand that. Well, let me do a sneak preview and I'll give you one more uh, chance for questions if you have any. A Bible study structure, Bible lesson structure, and that's what we're going to talk about in the next session is how to uh, put a Bible lesson together, how to take all this information that you have stacked everywhere. Um, I knew one Bible teacher who did all of his study on sticky notes. I don't know how he did it, but he had them stuck everywhere. I, I think he like secretly wanted to be in the CIA or something, but, um, but he had this method of putting it all together. It was, it was, it was amazing. It, you couldn't teach that method. Um, but I'll just give you a little bit of a, of a sneak preview. There is um, an imperatival structure. Imperative, command. This is a structure that is purely applicational. Now, that doesn't mean you're skipping the meaning of the text. It just means that your, your actual points in your outline are the application. Step one, you need to repent of any sin you've committed against another person. Step two, you need to go to that person if they have sinned against you. Step three, when forgiveness is granted, it needs to be granted forever. That, if that's the outline, that's purely imperatival. Those are, those are commands. Does that make sense? And what that does is that that puts at the forefront, remember I said a minute ago, expect to change lives with your teaching. Um, that puts at the forefront that expectation, makes it very clear. Um, so, that is imperatival structure. There's a, just another idea here, an exegetical structure. It's more of a list, and both are appropriate. Uh, for example, from Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, um, we could do this list. We could do uh, an exegetical structure, six signs of disobedience, or three signs of obedience, or we could do six signs of disobedience and three signs of obedience, however you want to do it. That's just a, that's just a list, and that's very useful. That's very helpful. In the paratival structure would be more like stop sinning in your heart and with your mouth start honoring Christ in your heart and with your mouth that's the whole that's that's your structure that's the main message why is that so powerful that's powerful because you're you're getting a triple whammy the application is contained in the outline which explains the text that is that is incredibly powerful and very memorable 
So just a little sneak peek there. Um, if you're in a position to be teaching on a regular basis, uh, think in terms of a little bit of variety. Everybody likes variety. Um, I, I enjoy steak, but I don't eat steak every day. Um, and so... Variety is helpful. This is one way to do it. This is just this is just two thoughts, um, and there's many others uh, that we could do, and we'll look at a few next time. So one more chance here. Any questions about application? And, and I know this is as dry as can be. We start with the driest, and we work forward to the to the greatness of God in the in the Word of God next hour. But uh, any questions right now on application? Why? Nobody. Wow. Well, that's easy. Yes. John. Can you briefly describe the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Yes. An unbeliever can have knowledge. Only a believer can act in wisdom. Anything about application? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, you made a point about acknowledging whether someone else you know has carried out um, the action appropriate? Yes. Just a moment ago? Yeah. And it was interesting. But in doing that, um, the perspective, what perspective should you take? Is it a comparative perspective? Like, am I saying they did this, check these boxes, so I should check all these boxes? Like, how I I know that there can be a perspective from intention of that person going to ask them, like, what was your intention? Why did you do that? And then making sure yours I'll give you the short answer now because coincidentally that is the entire topic I'm preaching on in about 25 minutes. Um, so, so hopefully that will be helpful to you. I'll give you the short answer now. Here's a great verse. Uh, I'm in favor. The older I get, I like memorizing um, addresses in the Bible as much as the actual verse because I can memorize a lot more addresses. Proverbs 18.17 says that the matter seems right until the other side is heard. So step number one is nobody has all the information. Nobody does. Um, and that's, that's a pretty key concept. Um, another key concept is, and you alluded to this already, is really testing your own heart. When you need to deal with a difficult situation with someone else, um, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then you will believe that this situation is here for my sanctification, not to nail this guy because of, he's a jerk. It's here for my sanctification, so I'm testing my own heart. Um, and I believe that uh, it's possible to really even elevate to a point to where every time there's a difficulty like this, if you see it exclusively as, okay, this is God has just enrolled me in this class again. Apparently I failed it the last time, so he's enrolled me in this class. Um, I want to pass and I want to do well. Uh, boy, that takes a lot of pressure off. Because now your, your focus is in the right places. Your focus is on how can God um, create Christ-likeness in me through this? Not how can I win, um, but how can I obey, for example, Romans 12.10, which says to prefer one another in honor. It doesn't say, have an asterisk that say, except for those you don't like or you disagree with. Um, so, learning for yourself. But hopefully this morning I'll answer that question in more detail. Because um, I, I know this is a tender issue. It's a very tender issue. So, all right, we do need to be done, and uh, so we'll we'll finish our time together. Thank you, Lord, for this moment here to take a break here as we um, we've really just kind of warmed up our our minds and our hearts toward thinking on lofty things that are very um, very much not seen in our world. I pray, Lord, that you would give us all hearts of worshipers that we come. 
as it were, on our knees with our heads down before a holy and mighty God who is righteous and who is white hot in his indignation against sin and yet is loving and kind in his graciousness toward those that he has saved through Christ. And so I pray, Lord, in these coming minutes that our worship of you would be a combination of awe and glory and a combination of joy and trembling and that we would have proper heart attitudes toward you, learning and growing to be more like our dear, sweet Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.